This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello, welcome to another Philosophy Takes on the News. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording on the morning of Thursday, the 9th of June. This is the week that saw Russia's invasion of Ukraine continue, with intense fighting in various parts of the country and worries rising about the export of Ukraine's grain harvest. The United Kingdom celebrated the Platinum Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II, and Boris Johnson won a vote of no confidence amongst the Westminster Conservative Parliamentary Party. Uh, Apologies from me, we've had a brief hiatus uh, at the end of May and the start of June, but we are back for a few weeks this month. This week we'll be thinking about the Jubilee celebrations, Boris Johnson's no confidence vote and food, glorious food. We'll also see what else we get onto as always. In fact, as we all know, not only are there the shiny attention grabbing headlines, there are the grubby details and dirty issues we'd rather not think about. Which brings me to this week's guests. Joining me today, we have Julian Bagini, writer and academic director at the Royal Institute of Philosophy. Hi, Julian. Good morning, Simon. Uh, Fiona McPherson, professor of philosophy at the University of Glasgow and president of the British Philosophical Association. Hi, Fiona. Hello, Simon. And Michael Hauskeller, head of department and professor of philosophy at the University of Liverpool. Morning, Michael. Good morning, Simon. Uh, Great to have all three of you with us, as always. Okay, so let's get to our first item. This week saw pressure mount again on UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson as a vote of no confidence in him was held amongst the Westminster Conservative Parliamentary Party. He won the vote by 211 votes to 148, but there was still a sizeable rebellion. He now wants to draw a line under all of his recent difficulties and for us all to move on. Um, It raises for me the issue of how UK democracy works, who were electing during a general election and to what extent a small electorate, in this case a parliamentary party group, determine who gets to be our Prime Minister? I know what I think, but I think the question's an interesting one anyway. Michael, I know you also had some thoughts about Boris and responsibility. Yeah, sure. Um, let, let me first address the, the point you were sure. raising. Uh, <laughs> because you're right, it is an interesting one, although I don't quite understand your take on it, because the question is not really why should the parliament has the right to dispose of the prime mm-hmm. minister, but rather why do they have the right to to choose the prime minister in the first place? Because it's not the people who elect the prime minister. Prime minister is, according to the cabinet manual, uh, he holds that position by virtue of his or her ability to command the confidence of the House of Commons. That's right. So he is never elected in the first place. Who is elected is representatives of the people. And there, I think, is a real issue because most of the votes are completely wasted because we have this um, first-past-the-post system, which means that any candidate of a small party who gets a vote, this vote will be lost. And of course, also, every vote that we give to um, one of the bigger parties who loses in in your particular constituency. So this is where the problem with democracy 
lies that most people's votes might not be counted, might not have any relevance. So the, the, the problem is not with the prime minister being chosen or, or got rid of by the parliamentarians. It's, it's a step further down the, the ladder. Sure. So, uh, so, I mean, just, just to think about that, then I'll, I'll bring in Fiona and Julian. So I agree with you about, about votes. We can, unfortunately, we haven't got, you know, sophologists' take on the news, but perhaps we can, we can uh, do our best with voting systems. But I think the reason I was raising the question as I raised it is because you're absolutely right that that actually is formally the case and certainly parliamentary parties any parliamentary parties within its right to have no confidence votes uh, and then to put pressure on or indeed choose a, a new leader who then would become prime minister i think what's interesting for me is that's become less apparent to many people in the country so with each general election uh, certainly in my lifetime in this country, we've adopted a more presidential style of electioneering where people are people seem as if they're not voting for their formally for their representative, though of course they are. They're not formally voting for uh, a particular political party, though, though they are. More and more people are um, thinking about personalities and, and voting for the, for the top leader. But in, and so when this sort of thing happens, people often say, oh, but there's a democratic deficit. Why do they get to choose who gets to be our prime minister? Whereas, in fact, formally, of course, they, they're perfectly within their rights to do so. I think, that, so I think I'm just drawing attention to that, to that tension as I've seen it through my lifetime in this country between what, what the rules say and what the conventions are and then the kind of more presidential style of general elections that we've been, become used to. Julian, why don't you? Why don't you? Come? Yeah, well, I mean, you, you've you've got me on one of my large collection of hobby horses um, here, because I think I think you're, I think you're right. I think people have really kind of misunderstood what democracy, as practiced in most Western countries, means. I think there are lots of factors around this. I mean, partly it's the way in which political parties have themselves can conducted themselves and created this kind of impression. I do tend to think it's also just something more broadly to do with the pervasiveness of a kind of consumer mindset where people believe mm-hmm. that the objective of democracy is to make your choice for what you want and then um, for you to receive that in full if you get it. And so people are looking for these tight lines between their vote and, and what they get personally, um, which I think is actually completely wrong because that's not what it's about at all what what you're doing in in, in a democracy is that you are selecting as a nation a a bunch of people to as michael said represent you Mm -hmm. to take decisions on your behalf and in government their job is to look after the interests of the entire country not just those people who voted for them which is i think another thing which is getting lost there's always there's a kind of winner takes all mentality now where people think my side won Therefore, you know, Yabu sucks to you on the other side and uh, you should now give us everything that we voted for. So I, th- I think that in, in a way, as, as, as a culture, we don't really sort of get what democracy is about, really. <laughs> we think it's the kind of thing that Plato and Aristotle hated, which it precisely is, you know, the majority seizing power, getting exactly what they want. Uh, and and, and the, the reason democracy has worked is because it actually hasn't turned out to be that at all. So I think you're right, Simon, pointing out people's, often people's, lack of understanding of how the system works. And it speaks to the incredible importance of civic education, not just at schools, although particularly at schools, but I mean, more generally, we need to, we need to have an educated and an understanding 
populace, that voters need to understand how the system works or else they can't be choosing appropriately, I think. And also, I think one of the other things you said I'd like to pick up on, we've kind of moved to a kind of cult of personality in our Mm. politics, which I think is deeply, deeply unhelpful. And um, I think Boris Johnson absolutely personifies this. One thing that has struck me is that if I look around an older generation of middle-class Scottish people who may have voted Tory, Mm-hmm. So many of them are against Boris Johnson and are absolutely appalled at his behaviour. And I think I think the Tory party know that and know that a lot of their core constituency are are right to to think his behaviour is objectionable. And one of the things that I think is shocking is that people, some people are sort of acting surprised about this. And if you look at Boris Johnson's history, I mean, it goes back to his school days when his schoolmaster wrote to his parents saying, Boris doesn't think the rules apply to him. He was sacked from the Times for lying. He was sacked um, from Conservative Party, Vice Party Chairman, and he was also um, Arts Minister, and he was sacked by Michael Howard for lying. Uh, We know that he went to the Queen and gave reasons for proroguing Parliament, which have been subsequently ruled to to be completely false. So he lied to the Queen. I mean, it's the Tory party should be, you know, they knew what they bought. They bought a penguin. They they shouldn't be expecting it to fly. (laughs) (laughs) Nice image. Uh, I completely agree that this is a problem, but it's not quite the problem that... um, I thought was the main problem, namely wow. that we don't really live in a democracy. Uh, now, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, uh, I don't know whether uh, a direct democracy would be a good thing. I don't know. But the representative democracy we have now means that, I mean, this first-past-the-post system means that I cannot vote for a small party because I know it's not going to make any difference, right? So I have to vote strategically. I have to vote for uh, a party that has a chance of winning. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that screws up the whole system. We end up with a two-party system. Um, And that means that the party, the ruling party, the party that eventually ends up in power, may well and often is a party that commands only a small percentage of the votes. So it's a minority that has actually voted for that particular party. So how is that democratic? Any thoughts on that one? I mean, I think we we should have changed the voting system years ago. Let me just try and and put this thought uh, in favour of first past the post and keeping it. No matter what one's political opinion, uh, at least party political opinion, is that it leads to decisive government. Um, And so in a parliamentary uh, setup, um, if you've got one party which then can command a majority in the House of Commons and and then think about the Lords, then you can um, put forward policies, put forward legislation and you can get it through Parliament without relying on favours from other smaller parties and, you know, we can pass legislation and move on. Um, that's always the... But it's not relying on favours. I mean, this way of thinking is completely wrong, right? Uh-huh. 
So you're right, it's easier to pass legislation and do the things that they want to do, right? Because they have the power. They don't have to negotiate. They don't have to argue. They don't have to have the better arguments. They can just do. <laughs> um, so if the system were different, they would have to convince the others that what they want to do is the right thing to do. I also think this is empirically false. Actually, I think that this is a myth that we that we um, convinced ourselves with, and people always said, "Look at Italy, you know, uh, uh, where, where Italy has been a political disaster pretty much since the Second World War." But there are lots of countries in Europe which also have you know proportional systems that are not Italy, right? So, so the idea that it's chaos without is is basically based on one cherry picked case study often. But the other thing is that it, what you're saying actually isn't quite true because. All political parties are coalitions, and in a two-party system, they're broader coalitions than they would be in a in a proportional system, right? Because it's not possible. The Labour Party would have split decades ago in the UK if we had a proportional system. It hasn't done because it, know, it knows if it splits, you're just leaving the stronger Conservative bloc. So these parties are coalitions, and all the negotiations and compromises they have to do are to keep their internal uh, parties happy. And so what you're seeing is, I mean, the Labour Party in opposition, to, for my money, is not being half as strong as it should be because it's trying to placate the different wings of the party. And so as a result, the, the leader really isn't taking a strong enough stance on anything, so trying to be all things to all people. And the Conservative Party at the moment, similarly, is a, is a shambolic coalition, essentially, in which uh, Boris Johnson is trying to kind of, again, you know, appeal to the different wings of his party to keep them going. So although formally this majority government can pass the laws, etc., behind the scenes, there's an incredible amount of compromise and mess. But like Michael's saying, the problem is with this system, it's worse because instead of it being a, a real debate of ideas and reaching compromises where you've got explicit, you know, arguments and ideologies it's about it's about the big p politics of managing your your party just the record i agree with both of you on that just in case anyone <laughs> uh, fiona do you want to say something uh, well i wanted to raise the topic that uh, michael sort of mentioned right at the start about you know boris johnson has said that he he is taking responsibility for party gate and it strikes me that this idea of taking responsibility is one that's very ripe for philosophical investigation. So it, um, it made me think of uh, Gilbert Ryle uh, and the sort of main idea in his book, The Concept of Mind, uh, when he talks about a category mistake. And so the idea of a category mistake is where you think something is of one kind when it's really another kind. So he has lots of nice examples in the book. One of the ones that's very nice is someone's idea of what a university might be. So he says, you know, imagine you go to visit your friend who's at university and they take you around and they show you the different academic departments and they show you the library and they show you, you know, the vice chancellor's office and so on. And then at the end of the tour, they say to you, well, that was great to see the library and the philosophy department, psychology department and so on. But, you know, what I really wanted to see was the university. <laughs> and, you know, someone who said that would have made a category mistake. They would have thought it was some extra element, some sort of special building, sort of unique thing called the university, which was separate from the departments and the library and so on. 
And I kind of think that maybe Boris Johnson is making a category mistake when he thinks about what taking responsibility means. So it seems to me that he seems to think it involves something like silently pointing inward and and sort of muttering the words, I take responsibility, or maybe it involves standing in front of a a camera um, uh, in front of the media and say, I take responsibility. And it seems to me that if that is what taking responsibility is, then then it's worthless. But that isn't what taking responsibility is. I mean, taking responsibility is something like being accountable for something uh, through your actions. And if you think that's what taking responsibility is, then uh, many people have taken responsibility through resigning or being sacked over Partygate. But it's certainly not Boris Johnson. <laughs> Actually, interesting that because it reminds me of the other sort of a uh, philosopher of that era. Jay Austin, he kind of thinks it's a special kind of speech speech act. So there's certain things you can do by saying. So if I say I forgive you, I've done it by saying it. If a priest says I now pronounce you man and wife or, or wife and wife, husband and husband, then by saying so, it does it. And he seems to think that by saying I take responsibility, you've done it. <laughs> but actually, there are some things where it's not enough to say you've done it. If I say I've returned your keys, you haven't done it unless you actually have returned the keys. And so you're right, there are actions associated with taking responsibility. You can't just achieve it by saying you've done it. That's right. But the the funny thing is that it's not clear what he has done by saying I'm taking full responsibility. But I was struck by this, this claim, which he made frequently after the Sue Gray report, right? I am taking full responsibility, but it didn't seem to have any content whatsoever. So what does it actually mean to say it? You said he assumes he has done it by saying it, but he has done what actually? What does it mean to take responsibility? Fiona has said, this is not what it means, and I completely agree. But it's not obvious what it means, right? I have responsibility for something, usually when I have a, had a hand in it, uh, when I have done something. So I'm acknowledging that I did it. I'm taking, uh, I have responsibility for it. Or also, I could be in a position which makes me responsible for what others have done. For instance, a police commissioner might be responsible for what happens under their watch, uh, even though they have no causal responsibility in a sense that they actually did something, someone else did, but by virtue of their position, they have responsibility for it. But what does it mean if someone says, I'm taking responsibility? Does it mean I accept that I did something wrong here? Well, in the case of Boris Johnson, that is not so, because he doesn't think, or at least doesn't say, that he thinks he did anything wrong, right? He doubles down on, I didn't do anything wrong. Is he saying, well, the people walking in uh, Downing Street, 10 Downing Street, they did something wrong and I acknowledge that I should have prevented this or that I'm responsible for it? Doesn't seem to be the case. (laughs) So it's completely unclear what it means when he says, I'm taking full responsibility. You you, You would think that it needs to have some consequences, some it needs to be spelled out in terms of some action that follows from taking full responsibility. And in Boris Johnson's case, it's not clear what that is. It doesn't yeah. seem to be anything. 
Yeah, I mean, in fact, from what I know, I mean, he has done one thing, and that's he's um, appointed new people, and it seems he's centralised power even more than was previously in 10 Downing Street. I mean, that seems to be uh, what, what he's done to try to ensure perhaps that uh, there's better running in, in 10 Downing Street. But but he has he himself hasn't, I think, certainly not taken full responsibility. He's he's moved things around. I mean, the, the one thing that, that I think is, is quite striking to me um, is that on some occasions he's apologised in Parliament, though probably not enough, certainly apologised to the press. And then within an hour or so, behind closed doors, we know this because behind closed doors he's been talking with Tory MPs, He's been kind of very boosterish all again. I mean, he's he's, he's been caught saying, you know, I, you know, in one breath almost, you know, I, I think it was absolutely terrible. I I really regret what happened in Ten Downing Street. Another breath, just only recently this week, he said, I'd do it all again. I mean, that that doesn't strike me as this person who's in the mindset that they're really regretting what happened and they're sorry for it happening and and so on and so forth. Indeed, that's the that's the stance pretty much that Steve Baker. Uh, Tory MP, one of the leading rebels, has has taken for the last few weeks. He doesn't seem any any modicum of of regret in Boris Johnson at all, and that these words taking full responsibility are, are kind of empty. I think those are. I mean, I think that's right, Simon. But there are two separate issues. One is: is he serious in in making the claim? Uh, you know, I am responsible, or I apologise, or I am sorry. Another is. You know what is it? You know if if you are indeed sincere about um, taking responsibility, what does that mean? And I think part of it should be making good. You know if a bad thing is happening, arranging things so that it, you ensure that can't happen again, uh, setting things up appropriately. You know the, there's the making good element, trying to ensure that doesn't happen again element, but there's also the facing the consequences element. I mean that's a huge part of taking responsibility, and we've just seen that he is not facing the consequences because the consequences of breaking the rules, particularly the rules that you yourself have set, and and then really, I mean, there's no other word for it, lying to Parliament about it. it, it it's just extraordinary that he can bluster his way through this as he's blustered his way through a lot of things. And it's, it speaks badly of our society that he can do that. I think a couple of things that I think relate to this responsibility issue, uh, rather different things. One is that in British politics, there used to be this very clear convention, they called it ministerial responsibility, so that if something seriously went wrong in your department, you resigned. And that was irrespective of whether it was down to an individual decision or not. And, and that kind of whole sort of code of honour, as it were, has been completely eroded, you know, starting well, from, the, from the mid-80s. I think the last people to resign on that principle unambiguously were probably... Uh, the defence ministers who resigned uh, uh, over the Falklands invasion about failing to see see it coming. So, so there's been this sort of increasingly the idea has become that if it wasn't directly to do with my decision, then I shouldn't have to resign. I'm not responsible. So we're, we're tying the notion of responsibility far, far more to our individual action. And, th- and that kind of relates to something I was saying earlier, really. more, in more and more things. We're, we're making things highly individualised. You know, you've got to trace the direct line between your action and the consequence or your choice and what you get. And, and the idea of any kind of collective element in this um, has gone out the window. In the case of Boris Johnson, of course, the, the problem is that <laughs> even with that diluted version of responsibility, he's, he's still responsible. I think the other thing that's happened is, is a kind of, if you like, almost kind of moral cynicism. Uh, and I think that, you know, it's, it's like 
people generally uh, are, are skeptical of the idea. People basically think that in politics, everyone's out for themselves. And in society, everyone's out for themselves, really. And that therefore, there's no point in getting too outraged when people behave badly because everyone does it, don't they? Or everyone would, wouldn't they? And and then it becomes a matter of uh, action is taken on a, on a kind of pragmatic utilitarian basis about whether or not it's really necessary. And that allows someone like Johnson to make the case, look, okay. I mean, basically, I think a lot of people's thinking is this. Yes, he did wrong. But in the grand scheme of things, is attending a few parties, breaking the rules, lying to the Queen, lying to the nation, lying to the House of Commons. You know, it's... They all do it, don't they? Anyway, we'd all do it, wouldn't we? But we need—we've got a country to run. We've got a crisis to manage. That's more important. We'll set that aside. So I, I don't know. I think I, I feel a bit sort of bad saying that because it makes me feel like I've, I've lost faith in the entire uh, culture. But I, I do think there is a kind of a, a general feeling that people don't expect as we don't expect as much of each other as as we should. I mean, certainly don't expect as much of our leaders. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely right, Julian, about this. But still, the thing with the taking responsibility is, is something different. I mean, you may also be right when you say that uh, we have started to restrict responsibility to individual personal responsibility. So in other words, I'm only responsible if I really personally had a hand in it. But if that were the case here, Boris Johnson could have said, I'm not taking responsibility. Mm. What those civil servants and other stuff in Downing Street did, they did, right? I didn't know about it. I mean, he's doing that too, kind of, right? Saying I didn't know it was a party, blah, blah. But he's not saying I'm not taking responsibility. He's saying I'm taking full responsibility, which normally would mean, and therefore, I resign. But he's saying I'm taking full responsibility, but I won't resign. (laughs) So then the question arises, what the hell does it mean to say this? And it means nothing. And that I find incredibly annoying and frustrating. Almost more so than the continuous lying. Right? Mm. Just one contrast as well. Because I, I agree I agree completely with what Michael's just said. But I, and, and many of the things that you're trying to feel your way through, Julian, but but even up till very recently, it's different It's different from the state, let's say, the, the defence case and, and Falklands, but even up till re- very recently, I'm, I'm struck by Amber Rudd, who used to be Home Secretary when Theresa May was Prime Minister. Uh, no, no fan of Amber Rudd, no fan of Amber Rudd as Home Secretary, but this, but in 2019, um, she, she, she made some speech, and obviously, you know, many in Parliament, and most of the time, these people are just relying on facts that their civil servants and other people give them. Um, and she misled Parliament because of something that a civil servant had, had put in, in the document that she was reading out, or answers she was giving, I can't the exact circumstances. So, so not, it didn't even arise, this kind of legally, knowingly misled, which is where Boris Johnson is at the moment. And she resigned pretty much immediately just for, for, for misleading the, the House. So, ta- so in that case, she was taking responsibility for something she said, even though it's pretty obvious that she didn't, she didn't write it. And so there's an interesting case there, I think, of someone in that role taking responsibility. I mean, in a way that there's a kind of odd, odd fiction here, because the thought would be, as, therefore, the minister who says anything in the House of Commons or any other public setting would check every single fact in the speech that they're given by their civil servants and policy advisors. No one 
No one could do that. That would be kind of madness. You'd, you'd spend your life doing nothing else. But so that what's interesting is that that she took responsibility for something that she said, and she has a general responsibility to ensure that people are giving her the right data or whatever it is. But I mean, we're far from the, from that situation with Boris Johnson because, as I say, he's relying on these legal niceties about, about knowingly misleading House the House of Commons. Well, well, Johnson, Sorry, yeah, well, Johnson is um, you know a rule unto himself, and he, I think, he does. He is shameless in a way that is is almost unique. And I have to say, this monster was created. Theresa May, you know, Theresa May, when Boris Johnson was in, in her government and he did something outrageous. Do you remember he said, Boris is Boris um, at one point. And ever since he started, there's been this sort of like Johnson exceptionalism that somehow he's this sort of like pantomime rogue. He does things other people don't do. And that's part of his charm. The same, you know, Trump was was similar. And somehow he's allowed the country and his party has gone along with this idea that the rules don't apply to him. As, As Fiona's saying, like he thought when he was a child, he's been getting away with this all his life and his party has indulged him and a lot of the electorate have indulged him and 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 now now we see the result we've got someone he will not he will be have to be dragged kicking and screaming from 10 downing street before he goes and any other pretty much any other politician would have seen that it's untenable they would have been embarrassed to still be standing on the on the door so i know i know we don't like this program to be too overtly partisan but with someone like boris johnson it's very hard to disguise the fact that he's a, a, a despicable human being frankly and that's on the record you don't have to <laughs> perhaps at some point i'll gather some academics who are pro johnson mm. but it's it's been very hard sourcing them yeah um i think at the moment it's quite hard to source Tory party supporters who are in favor of johnson I suppose one one thing to think about, that's a nice case to think about, Simon, the Amber Rudd case. So you might, in, in some sense, it seems a little bit harsh that she had to resign because, as you say, how, how could she possibly check everything? On the other hand, if there's not that level of consequence at stake, then it makes it very easy for speechwriters or civil servants who are trying to produce documents for ministers and so on not to care too much and not to put in the kind of effort that is required and that they should know that people's jobs are on the line and that this is big stakes. And, you know, I think part of what's going on here is that we need to hold people who are in an office to high standards. I mean, they are, they have tremendous privileges by by being in these high offices and we need to ensure that there are high standards in public life because if not it's it things do not function well when when there are not these high standards and when they are not maintained and it's quite interesting i read um an article recently that was talking about how many people in the tory party think that prisoners who have broken the law should not get the vote and that's the position of the tory party they think they should not get the vote why because they flouted the law so they don't get to vote on the people that make the law but yet at the same time they are willing to put up with Boris Johnson, who is making the law, um, but yet who has, you know, absolutely flouted the very laws that that he made. It's again, it speaks to kind of double standards, and it's not a holding. At the moment, the Tory Party aren't holding their own to higher standards; they're holding them to lower standards, not even the same standards, but lower standards, and it's very, very worrying. Great, thanks, all of you. Let's let's leave it there. And uh, we'll see you in the next part where we'll be upstanding for the national anthem.
and welcome back. In the past week or so, the UK has marked a very special anniversary. That's right, it's 25 years since the first Midsummer Murders episode. It's called Barnaby Elsewhere, of course. Congratulations to John Nettles, Neil Dudgeon and all concerned. Uh, I do, of course, jest this week, and you couldn't avoid it if you lived in the UK, saw village gatherings and national parties to celebrate the Platinum Jubilee, or Platy Jubes, as it's been called. This raises issues about the UK as a monarchy and the prospects for a republic, as well as other countries' attitudes to having the Queen as their head of state. We can talk about that uh, if we want to, but it also raises issues of national values. Clearly, many people thought it was an event worth celebrating, um, but many people didn't. Uh, all the way through the um, the last few days, my parents kept asking me on the phone, are you watching it? Are you watching the TV? <laughs> of course, I, I wasn't. In fact, I spent most of the, the four-day bank holiday watching reruns of Midsummer Murders. So what sort of national values do we have uh, as a country and what does the Platinum Jubilee tell us about ourselves? Uh, Michael, I know you're also interested in national values and thought it might be interesting to compare the UK with what's going elsewhere at the moment. So do you want to start things off with us? Yeah, sure. I was reading um, an article on Matthew McConaughey's uh, White House speech and then I listened to the speech where he pleaded with fellow Americans and lawmakers, obviously, to do something about the gun violence in, in America and to prevent those mass shootings from happening in the future. Uh, and at the end of the speech, she was invoking American values. He said something like, uh, we have to come together as a nation to restore our American values. And it struck me when I when I heard that that of course the the problem is that those who are opposed vehemently opposed to any restrictions to gun laws also invoke American values, right? This is what the Second Amendment, the right to bear firearms, is all about: the value of freedom, the free, freedom to protect yourself and your family and your home, but also protect the state. Uh, so in, in the Second Amendment, uh, they're talking about the militia. Um, so the right to form a militia to defend the state against its enemies, against the enemies of freedom. So the, the core value of freedom, individual freedom, uh, is very much in the background there. So I'm wondering whether there is such a thing as American values, what are those values? Can they be neatly translated in certain, into certain actions, practices, policies? And of course, the same question arises with respect to British values. I mean, during the Jubilee celebrations, there was lots of talk about British values, but it's not entirely clear what those are. I mean, something like, I don't know, democracy, rule of law, individual liberty, perhaps tolerance uh, of otherness of other people. But my question is not not necessarily what are those values, but who determines what those values are and what does it mean for a nation to have those values? Does it mean that we use them for orientation when we design policies. So uh, are they necessarily reflected in policies and common practices? So what does it mean for a nation to have 
certain values. Great, thank you. Julian, Fiona, any thoughts? I have an answer to that question. And so I mostly mostly have questions. <laughs> Rarely it's, 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 an, it's a nice question. So I was trying to think about um, different cases where the law says one thing and people do a different thing or people do one thing but there's no law and what would we think in those cases? So I was thinking about, um, it seems to me that I think it's probably against the law to litter. So you might think, well, that's one of the values then, right? It's in law that we shouldn't litter. But actually, if you look at the state of this country, it seems to me like almost everyone's going about littering if you look at the state of of, of, um, of the country. So something's in law but people don't adhere to it what what do we say then is that a value or not i don't know or what about something like queuing so there's no law that says you ought to be queuing all the time for everything but that's definitely something that british people do as far as i can see we're a nation of cures it's anyone who comes to britain from outside and comments on it and um, so is that is that one of our national values i don't know maybe these are sort of trivial examples but they're they're kind of fun to think about i suppose there's also a question of does a value have to be something really important, like not littering? Is that is that got the right heft to to be a value, or does it have to be something? I don't know, more substantial, you know, valuing of democracy and so on. Michael was listing the what he thought might be national values, and in fact, the UK government in twenty fourteen listed what our five fundamental values are. There's mutual respect and tolerance; those apparently come in as two different ones. And, and of course, the government says, well, you know, to be British, uh, you have to uphold these five values. But of course, one of them is individual liberty. So it's not quite clear how uh, individual liberty is uh, compatible with having to uphold these five values. So one might wonder whether there's a slight contradiction involved in, in these. Uh, I like that one. I think with the national values debate, there might be another sort of category mistake there, which people think that it's about... Yeah, so, so fairness is a great British value. And then people say, yeah, right. So it's the only country where so it's not a Spanish value. It's not a French value. They don't care about fairness. That's the wrong way of looking at it. I think what, what creates, if there's such a thing as national values, and I think there are, it's, it's, it's to do with the set. So I have this sort of, I'm going to wheel out my favourite old uh, metaphor for this. I kind of think that society-wide, think of like a, a mixing desk of value. So like, you know, if you go into a recording studio and you record 30 instruments, you set the volume of each instrument to create the right mix. And it's like, I think all across the world, we've pretty much got the same set of values as a set. Uh, there were one or two that you may have off completely. So for example, if you're a theocratic state or a secular state, you know, then, then that may not be there. But, you know, fairness, harmony, justice, all these things. What, what varies is the kind of level that these things are set at, at different countries. And, and, and that creates a different sort of overall effect. So that does lead to genuine differences. And the differences now, Michael says, who chooses them, who determines them? I think it's quite organic. So partly it's history and culture. And this is, this is where, you know, I would, I would nod to the conservatives on this. You know, we, these things don't exist in a vacuum and, if you, and, and things are embedded in culture and history. But they're also a, a thing of negotiation and change. And so that's why you've got to be open about them. And I think it is true that, you know, I think it's just evidently the case that the different countries have a different kind of overall value set. So, for example, you know, in, in East Asia and in China, there is more importance placed on what they, you know, the Confucians call harmony than there is on individual liberty. It's not that they don't care at all about individual liberty. It's just that social harmony's got a higher setting 
individual to the lower one. The Netherlands, for example, you know, within Europe, people talk about Europe, Europe. European countries are quite different. In the Netherlands, they have they talk about this thing called the polder. So the polder is is literally this bit of farmland which is created by dikes and everything. So, it, but what it stands for politically is the idea that. Uh, the Netherlands is a country where you have to kind of get agreement and, and consensus and sort of buy in together, work together. And so there's a in the political culture that has been, it gets bit, people, many people say it's been under threat in recent decades, but that's kind of the, the way of doing things. So I think these things kind of do make sense. But the problem with debates about national values is that in practice, as I think Michael was alluding to, when people invoke them, it tends to be to try and claim them for their side. So it's, it ceases to become about what genuinely unites the country and becomes about a vision of how it has to follow our notion of it. So really, in America, the gun debate, the right thing should be not people saying, no, no, this is our, our, this is our values and this means no, and this is our values and that means we've got to carry our guns. It should be, you know, look, we're, we, we've got this problem with, with gun crime. How can we manage these things? And do we need to turn down the dial on your individual liberty to carry a, a weapon of mass destruction um, in order to up the dial on our values of, of safety and community? Or are, 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 we, are we really okay with this, with this situation at the moment? Are we really okay being a country which has got many, many, massively more gun deaths than any other sort of democratic state for some mysterious reason? And what could it possibly be? There is a sense that the values are things set in stone that shall, you know, it's like the Ten Commandments, they shall never change and so on. But that's that's clearly, clearly not the way things are. These things are always changing and always evolving. And I think that in a way with the Jubilee, we, we can see that we're at this moment of, of potential change. Obviously, you know, at some point the, the Queen will be no more and people can see that change coming. And I think a lot of people have respect for the queen, that that person, and the you know the service and the duty and the uh, getting on with it, and not 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 causing drama in the way that many of our other family members do. But I think they can. They're now now people are saying, well, perhaps you can recognise that and respect the queen and think that she's done in many ways a good job. But actually, you can pick that apart from thinking about, but do we want a monarchy in general? You know, when you look at the the next generations coming up, again, I worry that people are thinking of individuals here and identities and, and, you know, personalities where, you know, that's not what we should be thinking. We should be thinking about, well, good people or bad people may fill those roles. The question is, do we want things to run on this hereditary basis? I definitely think that we should not not least for the sake of the monarchy. I mean, one of the reasons that the Queen seems so extraordinary is that she was thrust into this role that she didn't want at an early age and she put up with it and she, you know, she, you know, good on her. She she did, I think, as good with that role as you could hope, really. But what a hideous role. And you look at people like William coming through, he didn't ask to be that. Uh, he didn't ask to be the, the heir to the throne. And... How how miserable for him. And when you see all the drama around Harry and Meghan and Diana and all these people who they're thrust into this hideous role and they quite understandably have a hard time with it, I think. So for the sake of the monarchy, let's get rid of the monarchy. I don't think that the monarchy is, is a problem we are currently having, a problem that we need to tackle. I don't really care whether Britain is a monarchy or not, but it's not the monarchy that brings us down at the moment. And at least 
we have uh, in the Queen kind of an image that is projected of Britain as something, well, with certain values. Again, those values are a bit fuzzy, but something like service, you mentioned it, um, for the community, dignity, perhaps getting on with it, yeah, a certain stoicism. But at least it projects an image of values that is very different from the image of values or rather non-values that someone like Boris Johnson projects, right? Integrity. That seems utterly contingent. That seems utterly contingent on the fact that we happen to have a queen of that sort. And that's the problem with it. What's good about Boris Johnson is that if we vote in the right way, we can get rid of him. The problem with the monarchy is that there's no way to do that. And just contingent that we have a, a queen who projects those values. And I think it's more worrying that we have a system that endorses a monarchy where there's a hereditary line and people are just born into certain positions. I don't want to live in a society that thinks that that is a, is a good way to run itself because it's not. But I thought you were just saying that you wouldn't be, you wouldn't want to be one of them because it can't be easy. It's, it's a terrible job to have, right? And I think you're completely right. So you're absolutely right, too, that it's contingent, right? Could be some someone completely different. But the way the monarchy works in Britain is they don't have any power whatsoever. It's completely representational. And therefore, I don't think it is a problem. It doesn't, it doesn't create any problems. I think that's debatable, whether they do have any power. And I wasn't, I wasn't just saying I don't want to be queen, but, you know, maybe, maybe some days. Um, just joking. <laughs> I think that, um, you know, my problem is I don't think anyone should be put into that position. But the more, serious, the more serious point is that we shouldn't have that kind of setup. We shouldn't organize our society where, A, you can't get rid of someone who's in a certain position, and B, where people are just born into certain positions. And I think the thought that they have no power whatsoever, I think, even if they only have soft power, let's put it that way, they have a lot of soft power. Okay, fair enough. Uh, it's kind of funny that I'm suddenly in a position defending the British monarchy. I don't give a damn about British monarchy. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I thought we were talking about values. Uh, I think national values. And I think when we're talking about national values, we have to have, how should I say, figureheads, people that represent or symbolize or manifest those values. Uh, it doesn't have to be the queen; can some can be somebody else, right? Um, but we need to have some kind of personal manifestation of the values that we think defines us as a nation or a people. That is the problem I have with the monarchy: is the symbol saying the values we have. Okay, it's tradition. People would say, okay, it's inherited privilege. It's well, and, and as Fiona said, actually, a, a, not just a privilege, but a burden. But it's the wrong kind of symbol. But the other thing is, I think about these national values ideas, is that my worry is that, uh, again, they can become, like going back to Boris Johnson, you know, they can become performative, that by saying them, you somehow don't have to embody them. And in fact, it gets worse than that. I'm sounding a bit like Slavoj Žižek here, but, you know, that by, by saying them, you actually, you know, eradicate the need to, to check whether you're actually embodying them. So if you think of some of these so-called British values, I think the British are so, so 
obsessed with the idea that we we are about fair play. Fair play, that's what the British are. And, and of course we are. And, and we know that, unlike those sort of like scurrilous continentals who are all sort of, you know, doing backhanders and things and all that kind of thing. And it's, it's been such a dangerous myth. I mean, we know that Britain is the, one of the leading centres for money laundering. I mean, there's been some really great work. Oliver Burlow's written this, several books about it. And you know, even The Economist uh, recently wrote a big leader article and everything, pointing out that, you know, Britain had not become uh, a haven for oligarchs money by accident it was actually kind of it was by design it was it was set up that way so so we, we this comforting idea that our national values are about fair play have actually allowed all sorts of corruption and stuff to to actually occur right under our noses because we refuse to see it because we don't we don't believe it exists and this is always a problem with big performative things about values yeah i get worried about this as well a lot of schools now in some ways, if you ever go into a school, it's quite nice in a way. They have posters up saying, you know, these are our values, respect, listening, inclusion, etc., etc. And I, I, overall, I don't be too cynical about that. It's probably a good thing overall. But sometimes I think, you know, company, perhaps, in, perhaps in a corporate environment rather than schools where people do all that kind of stuff, you wonder whether what the, whether the reality really matches that. You know, tell yourself you are diverse, inclusive, tolerant enough company enough and you, you have to sort of stop bothering to check whether you're actually doing it because of course we are and I've, I, have, I have seen some organizations like that to be honest which um uh you know what the leaders are pronouncing and what's going on on the ground so so the, the national values thing i think the, the big worry there is that people believe they believe it too too easily they believe the, the myth of their national values and as a result they actually stop doing the work to check whether they're actually being uh implemented I was just going to say it links back very nicely to what we were discussing earlier, Boris Johnson saying, I'm taking full responsibility. Where's the reality behind it? And in the same way, uh, we might profess to have certain values, but the reality behind it is not there. And it serves actually to conceal the absence of that actually living of those values, right? It seems to be enough to profess that we have those values instead of actually doing something that brings those values to life. We often do exactly the opposite, as you widely pointed out. Just just to add to that, so um, when you think of these national values as things set in stone, things that, as Julian was saying, you know, is what it, it's dangerous because you might think that actually we, that's, that's how we are, we do live up to those values, it might be better to call them national aspirations. All right, let's all try to be this, let's all try, and let's, when we're doing things, let's make sure the, uh, it is in accord with these aspirations that we have. That would get rid of the thought that um, we, you know, we live up to these aspirations um, just by calling them something slightly different. I, I mean, I agree with Julian, you know, fair play is supposed to be the, you know, one of the great British values, but um, it's so clear that how you got on in life is determined by your initial circumstances and whether you go to Eton or not, for example, that, um, you know, we should we should not say that, you know, we should say that this is an aspiration we have for, for us not to be like that, but uh, we're nowhere near. In fact, I think it's getting worse. Well, on that positive note, um, should we end that discussion uh, there? And we'll see you all in the in the next segment when we're all going to be tucking in. And welcome back. 
Earlier this week, it was rumoured that the government is likely to water down proposals for a long overdue food strategy for England, despite the recommendations of two government commissioned reports. Food security, production and consumption is a topic that many countries are currently thinking about, of course, not just uh, here at home. Uh, Julian, do you want to say a little bit more about it? Yeah, well, this one interests me because, you know, there's this fundamental question about what government's for uh, and what are their responsibilities. And I, I kind of think it's perhaps under underthought through. I mean, obviously, you know, political philosophers will, will tell me I, I could be wrong and everything, but I think traditionally political philosophy has been a lot about, you know, what legitimises the power of the state to the extent to which it is permitted to restrict the liberties of individuals. But th- there seems to be less thought, again, maybe in philosophy this isn't true, but but in society about, you know, what are the responsibilities of a government uh, in the positive sense, right? And I think that what's really interesting is that food has kind of really drifted away. You know, people have not really thought that food is the business of, of government because it seems that, you know, markets just take care of it, right? Markets have filled our supermarket shelves. And also we had this terrible negative example of like the, the Soviet Union and everything. People saw what happened when governments tried to manage food supply you know, that, that is a disaster. So kind of the, the invisible hand argument that, you know, basically the government, it's better to leave it to the market that satisfies it, et cetera, et cetera, really worked. Through. So people didn't really think about whether the government had any responsibility to for the food of the nation. Now, I think a few things have really, really shaken that up. Uh, the pandemic was really interesting, wasn't it? In the early days of the pandemic, suddenly people recognised that people who working in supermarkets and delivering food are key workers, absolutely key workers and there was talk of getting the army in you know the army in to, to, to keep tesco's going extraordinary but it's not because of course this is food this is absolutely basic um we've got the ukraine situation at the moment where we're seeing how potentially hugely dis- disruptive it can be when food supplies are disrupted but also the other thing is this growing recognition that a food system which is being left entirely to the market is potentially sort of making well, making people sick, essentially. You know, the people are eating badly and there are all these sort of illnesses, lifestyle things. And it's not because people are, are feckless and lazy and, and don't know how to cook. It's because uh, the financial incentives are to provide them with foods which are highly processed, full of... Uh, these processed oils, refined sugars, etc., etc. So the thing about the national food strategy is one doesn't even know the details of it, but you know, to the credit of the government, they did set one up, and it reported all the sort of various things that government could do to try and ensure that the nation is is well fed. In other words, that, that people can afford their food, uh, that their food is healthy, and that there is good food security, and. If you state it like that, it would seem really, really obvious that it's the government's responsibility to make sure all those three things obtain. And yet, de facto, it's been all left to the market. So uh, the, the, the sort of issue that arises for me, apart from the particular ones about food, is, you know, maybe philosophers do this, but as a society, do we not think, do we think too little about what government should and should not do? And have we rather just sort of like, assumed where the government has historically been active we assume the government has a role and where it hasn't we kind of assume that's no business of the government and that if you used to sort of like think more carefully about it you might realize maybe the government should should get out of a few things it's involved in 
but maybe it should be getting much more involved in some others. Thanks, Julian. Uh, really uh, interesting opening. Michael, Fiona, any thoughts from you? Julian didn't actually state a position, but I, I think there was maybe one subtly implied there, which is, yes, the government should do this. And I mean, there's just increasing evidence that it's it's required and the evidence shows that it's good for people. So, um, for example, universal school meals, all the evidence shows that when you feed children appropriately, they learn better. Um, actually, their weight goes down when you give them free school meals because they're not having empty junk calories. If you have universal school meals, people aren't uh, the people who get the free meals when when they're at, you know just a proportion of people who don't feel kind of shame for getting these free meals, um, and it leads to good health. And so we save on the NHS, and and they learn better, and so they get better jobs, and and it's just a win win win, especially when um, with the cost of living crisis, people are. Are, are not being able to afford to eat and food banks are, are rife across the country. And I think it's, um I think although we have a cost of living crisis right now, I think for many people, there's been a cost of living crisis for a long, long time. People on benefits, but also, also the working poor where people are working very hard and very long hours, but just don't earn enough to be able to eat properly. And I think it's, I think it's shocking. And I think, I think we definitely do need a strategy, not least so that people and children can eat, but also because of things like global warming and um, and by all signs, it looks like with the uh, Brexit legislation and our peeling off from European laws, it looks like our food standards are going to go down, not up. And the government's watering down of the national food strategy, I think, is just openly uh, speaks to that. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not quite sure uh, what to say. It seems obvious that. In, in the situation that we're in right now, the government should um, devise policies that, that help people in that situation. But I suppose it's not quite on the agenda uh, or it takes a long time to get on the agenda because the market used to be working, right? So it, there was no need for the government to intervene. And now the need is there, but that requires and some rethinking. And the other problem is that perhaps they don't care enough. They don't care enough about not only feeding people, but making sure that food is safe and healthy, because there's so so many economic interests involved that work against food safety um, and, and the healthiness of food. Usually, when there's a conflict between safety and economic gain, economic gain wins, right, in terms of policies. Um, that brings us back to British values. What are the values that we actually, actually endorse, that we actually practice, right? Let the hungry starve, right? Or do something, show solidarity, show compassion, show that we're in this together. Or is this, again, just um, a phrase that is being used during the pandemic, for instance, we're in this together to motivate people to do something, but no one really believes this? Well, I mean, one thing I would disagree with you, Michael, is that the market appeared to be working. It wasn't actually working for years in food. The reason I say that is that there's a kind of a, a mythology, and I'm not saying you fall for this, that yeah, pe- people kind of imagine that, that markets 
uh, just exist in this vacuum. They always exist in some regulatory framework. And, and the incentives that have been put in place have incentivized a certain form of agriculture and food production, which hasn't uh, resulted in sustainable and, and healthy food. It's put calories in people's stomachs and it's put profits in food producers, although less on farmers, actually. You know, people making money out of food and not the people creating the source ingredients. It's the people who are doing the processing. So it hasn't, hasn't really worked from that point of view. And one reason is, going back to classical economics, is that the externalities haven't been priced. So in other words, you know, agricultural production has been able to deplete the soil, pollute waterways, uh, reduce biodiversity. All of these things come at cost, but they're not being paid by anyone. They're just being picked up by uh, future generations. So I think that the, 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 you know, the, the part of the reason that, that the market was never working, it was an illusion it, it, it was. The other point I wanted to make was about how another thing which has allowed this drift to happen, I think, is that people have believed that in a functioning market, you can just leave things to individual choice. But, but this is, again, massively overestimating our capacity to be autonomous. You can only make the choices available to you in the choice environment you have. And there are collective social decisions which determine what choices are possible. So as a matter of fact, the choices we have at the moment are that I'm comfortable enough and I can buy um, healthy food and nice food. And not all of it's expensive, but sometimes it's more expensive. Partly it's also because things are available to me. Other people, they, they can't. Their, their local shops only stock the um, highly processed stuff. It's more expensive, etc., etc. So, so, so this whole idea that you don't need to intervene because people should be allowed to make their own choices. Well, people are being allowed to make their choices, but they're not being enabled to make equal choices, and that's a real problem. It seems a long time ago when we had the uh, Jamie Oliver campaign for healthy school meals, but it seems quite extraordinary that. You wouldn't provide healthy school meals for children, and likewise in hospitals. I mean, the the um, there's no legislation. I think that hospitals have to live up to any healthy standards vis-a-vis the food that they provide, or provide information about what's in it, and and so on and so forth. And that just seems yeah very very disappointing. I had a friend once who was in hospital and was told, you must be on a low salt diet for your condition. And so the food choices came around that evening and the person said, I've been told I must not be on a low salt diet. And they were like, oh, we can't provide that. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Crazy. Yeah, I mean, I was going to bring in hospitals because that's, I mean, we focused a lot on on, uh, schools and education, children, clearly the food there is very important. But it's, it's like, immediately important in the case of patients in hospital because the food they're eating there in the hospital might directly affect the the condition they're in the hospital with i mean it just seems it seems obvious going back to your your original question julian i mean that the original general question are there aspects of our life which the government is intervening in where they where they shouldn't be intervening i think that's an interesting question it's been buzzing around my head as we've been talking about food because i agree with everything we, we've been saying and just to, to generalize it's, it's obvious that food is a is a basic need for us and that we've got to a point in in our current society and economy where food and our consumption of it and our production of it is so um, significant and so woven into other things that happen. We mentioned education and health and the economy. But it's pretty obvious the government should be intervening and doing things. So then I was trying to thinking, well, to answer your 
question then, your initial one, you know, what, what things is the government, well, not particular policies, but I mean general areas, that what general areas should the government not be kind of intervening in it? It's, I'm struggling to think of it. And I don't know whether that's because there's a, there's a current moment, not just in our country, but in many countries, where so many things are under strain. And actually we need kind of collective action because it may, it may be that only collective action that only governments can provide is the sort of things that can change direction and, and reduce that strain. But I don't know, I don't want to lose sight of your, your general question, actually, Julian. I mean, I'd like to hear one too, because I mean, I think that the, the trend over a sort of several decades has been for the rolling back of the state, to use Margaret Thatcher's phrase. So I think we're in a position whereby we're, we're, it's more obvious where the state needs to sort of get Get, get put its hand in again rather than it should should withdraw. I think one of the things though which um, people don't think about here is the way in which the state legislation enables certain things that it shouldn't perhaps be enabling. Uh, so, for example, money laundering. <laughs> you know, um, but I think property is actually this is a topic for another day. But property is 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 fascinating, really. I, I struggle to see why anyone. I mean, this, this might sound radical, but I don't think it is. Why should anyone be able to own land in perpetuity, right? This seems to me ridiculous. <laughs> this is a shared resource, you know. And so we have, we have the government enables people to hold on to land in perpetuity, which I don't think it should be doing. So it should, it should withdraw that role. And it should instead, there should be some system of long lease, you know, which can allow people to sort of pass things on. But over over generations, it, 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 it is ridiculous, isn't it? I, I think. And again, it's, it's thinking about how certain things that we just get used to, we just accept. But if you think about them, you think, why on earth did we ever accept this? And I think that's one of them. And I, I think I wonder whether, I mean, having people writing about this, um, you know, land ownership in the UK and how opaque it is and how... So much of the land is concentrated in a few people. I wonder whether there might be, you know, not coming at all from a sort of a communist kind of, or even democratic sort of socialist sort of angle at this, kind of like challenge this idea of land ownership rights and see that this this this, this ain't right. We've got to sort this out. Scotland is, is um, Fiona probably knows more about this than me. In Scotland is extraordinary. The, the number of people who own, uh, the small number of people who own the vast swathes of land is, is totally uh, proportion, isn't it? It is, and increasingly people are buying up um, areas of land to offset their carbon footprint, and but thus making those areas of Scotland too expensive for local community buyout, which had become a very positive trend because there's just so many absentee landlords and so on. So, yeah, it's, it's not a good thing. Another area, actually, that we might think of, and that's quite a contested area, and one close to no doubt all of our hearts here, is uh, that the government is involved in, and many people think it shouldn't be, is in deciding what research should be carried out. So the Haldane principle says something like decisions about what to spend uh, research funds on should be made by researchers, not government. And increasingly, the government uh, has been interpreting that as saying, well, actually, we get to decide what areas of research, you know, are undertaken. It's just that academics get to decide, if you like, uh, academics then get to bid in for that. And then academics choose amongst the various proposals that are put in. But I think that that is a a new understanding, should I say, of the Haldane principle and, and the spirit of it. And it's very clear to me that the government is more and more determining what research gets done in this country, and it's not determined by researchers. And I do find that worrying because I think the government is often 
driven by the issues of the day, which are important. But I think that having a strong research base where people are carrying out fundamental research is is even more important because without that, we're not in a good position to tackle challenges that arise often unexpectedly, like COVID, for example. And so I can understand why the government wants certain research challenges addressed. Climate change seems like a good one. It seems like a good seems good to ask people to think hard about whether they can do something about that. But I think the pendulum has swung too much in that direction and needs to swing back a bit. Well, I think we'll leave uh, that segment there. And thank you for listening. And also, we should say thank you to our guests. So, Michael, thanks for appearing with us. Thank you. And Julian. A pleasure. And Fiona. Thanks, Simon. And all being well, we'll be with you soon for another Philosophy Takes on the News. Music.